2: Hello, this is Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Did you ever wish you could get a glimpse of what Christmas was like in the Gilded Age? Well, now you can. Join me and Barry Boys Walks on December 9th for a special VIP one-day bus trip from Manhattan to Lyndhurst Mansion in Tarrytown, New York, Gilded Age financier Jay Gould's country home, and the subject of my new episode today. For more information and tickets, please visit BoweryBoysWalks.com. I hope to see you on December 9th. The Gilded Age produced no shortage of controversial, polarizing, complex personalities from financiers to socialites all of whom, in one way or another, fought, fairly or not, to build a social and economic structure for America in the last quarter of the 19th century. One of the names that is perhaps most often mentioned, and one of the personalities most often discussed, is that of Jay Gould. Jay Gould was a name spoken of in the same breath with that of the Astors and the Vanderbilts, and indeed... It was with Cornelius Vanderbilt that Gould tangled for control and dominance of America's rapidly growing railroad network. Gould was known as ruthless, sharp, and devilish to the point of becoming known as the Mephistopheles of Wall Street. His methods of relentlessly seeking profit remain much discussed among historians and biographers today. This very special episode is not an attempt to delve into the financial and business practices of Jay Gould. That is for another show. This show is, however, a look at another Jay Gould, what he was like at home with his family. And while so much of Gilded Age domestic life has disappeared like burned money, the more personal life of Jay Gould and his family is still here for history lovers to see and experience today. For this special look inside Jay Gould's private world, the Gilded Gentleman traveled to New York's beautiful Hudson Valley just about an hour north of New York City and recorded this show on location at Lyndhurst Mansion in Tarrytown, New York, Jay Gould's summer home. I had the great opportunity to sit down with the executive director of Lyndhurst, Howard Czar, for a very special journey into the life of Jay Gould, and Howard gives us a very special tour of Lindhurst itself. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every other week we delve into worlds light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. As you turn off the main road and proceed along the winding drive, the great mansion suddenly appears before you. Set at an angle to the drive, this gothic revival mansion, its oldest sections dating to the late 1830s, rises up before you. The house and its various additions were the work of Alexander Jackson Davis, one of 19th century America's most prominent architects, whose work included Federal Hall on Wall Street and the Customs House at Bowling Green in New York. Surrounding the mansion is the extensive, nearly 70-acre park with the house located on its highest point, dramatically overlooking the Hudson River. If you look carefully from the top of the mansion's Gothic Tower far above the tree line, you can see all the way down to New York City itself. The grounds include a pear orchard, rolling lawns, a lilac hedge, as well as an extraordinary greenhouse commissioned by Jay Gould himself as an example of his great personal passion for horticulture. The house had two sets of owners who expanded and adapted it before Jay Gould and his family bought it and moved in in 1880. Jay Gould continued to use it as a summer home until his death only 12 years later in 1892. The house remained in the Gould family until, upon the death of the last Gould daughter in 1961, it was donated to the National Trust who maintains the property and opens it to the public today. As a result, visitors today can see the mansion much as Jay Gould knew it himself. His desk is still there, His piano remains in the reception hall, and the dining room appears as it did for a Gould family dinner. On a beautiful summer day, I went up to Lindhurst with the Gilded Gentleman production team to record this show. So let me take you through the great heavy wooden and glass doors, up the stairs into Jay Gould's own picture gallery still hung with his impressive private collection of paintings and artwork. You may recognize the Lyndhurst Picture Gallery as well as some other rooms and locations about the house. Many served as filming locations for the HBO series The Gilded Age. So join me as we go inside the world of financier, tycoon, and family man of The Gilded Age, Jay Gould. I am so excited to be recording this show on location at Lyndhurst Mansion during the 1880s and early 1890s of Gilded Age railroad magnate and financial speculator Jay Gould. We are actually recording today in Jay Gould's picture gallery. Now, for our conversation and walk through the mansion, I am deeply honored to be joined by Executive Director of Lyndhurst, Howard Zar. Lyndhurst is one of the properties overseen by the national trust for historic preservation and for the past 10 years howard czar has been the executive director of lindhurst howard brings exceptional experience to his role here at lindhurst he began his career as an art specialist and auctioneer at sotheby's and holds a masters in art history from new york university in addition to an nba from yale Howard worked his way through the worlds of finance and marketing before coming back to the world of art and historic preservation. In addition to his work as executive director of Lyndhurst, he sits on the board of the Eldridge Street Synagogue of New York City and is involved with other historic preservation organizations in the Hudson Valley. Howard, I am so honored and deeply grateful to have you join the Gilded Gentleman today.
3: Well, Carl, thank you for coming here.
2: I'm glad we could host you in this spectacular space. I'm so excited to be here. And I am particularly grateful to record this show really here on location at Lindhurst. And so, enormous thanks to you and all of the staff here at Lindhurst for making this happen. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for coming. (laughs) We have an awful lot to get to in this show, so let's just jump in. So, Howard, let's start with just a little bit of history to put everything that we're going to talk about and see into context for listeners. So, Jay Gould was such a towering figure in the Gilded Age, and so much has been written about him. Since to really try to portray him as as he was. His reputation was certainly challenging, to be sure. He was called the Mephistopheles of Wall Street, among other other things. But could you really give us an overview of just who Jay Gould
3: was and how he fit
2: into the Gilded Age world of the Astros and Vanderbilts? Jay
3: Gould is a very interesting Character. And when we talk about Jay at Lindhurst, it's really about him as a precursor to how we live today as modern people, contemporary people, and many of the things that Jay was able to do in his time are really examples of what we now take for granted. But in his time, he was not welcome by the society of the Astors and the Vanderbilt. Mrs. Astor in particular was known to have kept him out of society completely. And literally the moment he died, his children were allowed in, but he never was. A lot of that is because Jay Gould was really quite extraordinary as a financier. And in his time, he developed things that actually cost his competitors, the Vanderbilts in particular, a great deal of money. So he was really kept out for his financial acumen and what he did. However, the sense of Jay Gould as being restricted and a pariah in society is not 100% True, He was actually so important in the business world that he was very much involved. And when the Vanderbilts and the Astors and the other signs of business needed him, he was there at the table doing his business and working with them. When they didn't want him and he was a competitor, everybody had their sharp elbows out and they were against each other. And that's the reality of what Jay Gould was in that time. I suspect That if either Jay Gould or his wife, Mrs. Helen Gould, wanted entree into society, they probably could have gotten it and probably could have purchased it. However, Jay was really a man who grew up in a farming village in the Catskills in Roxbury, New York was from a very old Scottish Presbyterian family that had come to the United States in the 17th century and had largely been farmers through much of their history. And I think his sense of who he was and what was important to him was slightly different than what the high society of the Gilded Age wanted. He was actually a family man. He respected his wife. He respected his children. I think like modern Wall Street uh, workers, he wanted the best of everything for his family, but wasn't actually that interested in society.
2: So... This rough-and-tumble reputation that he had, do you think
3: that was deserved? Well, from a financial perspective, uh, Jay's rough-and-tumble reputation is completely deserved. I think what made him a pariah is that he was literally better than his competitors. So really until John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil come on the scene. There is nobody as hard-driving, hard-charging, as... that gambles as much as Jay does on Wall Street. Jay does not live a particularly long life. I believe he does when he's either 53 or 54. John D. Rockefeller lives well into his 90s and well into the 20th century. So, John has a longer shadow. Jay Gould is now, in many ways, largely forgotten because he exits the scene much earlier. But his reputation is deserved. Much of what What Jay does on Wall Street sets the standards for how Wall Street acts today, how stocks are traded, how stocks are evaluated. Essentially, Jay Gould is the first corporate raider, something that many of us think was only a matter of the 1980s and 90s or 1970s, but it starts with Jay Gould in the 1870s.
2: I think that's fascinating because not only are you a historian, but you also come from a financial background. So you're able to look at his life and his world with a financial uh, set of eyes, too, which is really unique.
3: Yeah, that, you're absolutely right. Under, having worked as an investment banker on Wall Street, I understand when I read what Jay's practices are, how revolutionary they are. In many ways, a lot of what Jay developed Um, which was standard practice on uh, Wall Street, really didn't change until Franklin Roosevelt installs Joseph Kennedy as the head of the first Securities and Exchange Commission after the market crash during the Depression. Before that time, Wall Street was essentially a buyer beware place. If you didn't know any better, you could be hoodwinked. And once the impact of that on uh, small investors is realized, those policies are changed. And it's not till Joe Kennedy, who was also a master at those types of things as well, and was probably the, the largest practitioner on Wall Street, until he actually changes the laws. In the 1930s, what Jay Gould started in the 1870s really is lingua franca for Wall Street.
2: I'd like to scope out a little bit at this point and talk about this particular geographical area so we are north of the city this is the beautiful hudson valley but at the time when gould bought Lyndhurst, the area was changing it no longer was just another enclave for the gilded age elite and gould buys Lyndhurst in 1880 can you talk a little bit about what shall we say the neighborhood was like in 1880 when the goulds moved in
3: Yes, let's talk a little bit about what was happening in Terrytown at the time, which had originally been Millionaire's Row, and how that was metamorphosing. So one of the things to understand about Lyndhurst is it's not originally a Gilded Age house. It became a Gilded Age house when Jay Gould purchased it in 1880. So when Jay Gould gets here, he's looking for a place that is close enough to Wall Street where he can come home every night to his family and he can take his yacht from the country estate down to Wall Street and back, which he does. However, this area at the time was becoming largely an area where German-Jewish bankers and the German-Jewish business elite of New York City was moving in as the Vanderbilts and the Astors and their ilk were moving out to places like Newport, and the Berkshires. So at the time, what was happening was that these large banking families uh, were purchasing properties around here. So the Lehman Brothers purchased three estates immediately north of Lyndhurst. The Seligmans purchased property immediately south of Lyndhurst. And the Seligmans were the Goldman Sachs of the 19th century. They were the people that floated the union bonds in Europe during the Civil War to finance the Civil War. And they were the most prominent banking family. And even through the 20s and 30s were one of the most prominent families, for example, in Palm Beach. So those people were moving in, and essentially what that meant was that this was no longer as exclusive a neighborhood as would be uh, considered around the time of the Civil War and afterwards. So once Christians allowed Jews to move in, the neighborhood was essentially considered a little bit ruined. Now, Jay Gould was actually a very liberal person in that way, and he was close friends with the Seligmans, who were his banking partners, but also his friends. At the time, the rule was you could have business with people who are not Christians, but you really were not supposed to be close, personal friends with them and interact personally with them. That was actually considered a taboo and comes a little later than when Jay first moves here. So Jay doesn't care. He moves to a place that is convenient for him, that allows him to be with his family, allows him to go to Wall Street every day. And he is friendly with the people who the Astors and Vanderbilts might not have been friends with.
2: And with that, Howard and I are going to take a short break, but we'll be back to continue the story.
0: There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast, it's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination more popular than loving political revolutions more popular than maire and mère somehow being different words to be it's more popular than being french see you in there there are any number of reasons you might consider
1: selling your home to move closer to family live within a smaller budget or just wanting a change of scenery Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. If a friend asks how you're doing,
0: and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is,
2: And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and we are on location at Lyndhurst Mansion. And Executive Director Howard Czar is taking us back into the world of Gilded Age financier Jay Gould. Now, one of the extraordinary things about Lyndhurst that you just alluded to is that there are actually three families that have lived here before the Goulds lived here. And the architect that was responsible for the house was Alexander Jackson Davis, who was enormously influential throughout a lot of the 19th century. Can you talk a little bit about his influence on the house and how it evolved through the various families that lived here, and particularly the Goulds?
3: Lyndhurst is actually considered the most seminal house in the United States of the 19th century. In the way that Monticello for the 18th century is, Franklin writes Falling Water for the 20th century, that's Lyndhurst in the 19th century. Davis was essentially. Frank Lloyd Wright of the 19th century. He built the state capitals of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, North Carolina. He built major institutions, the uh, NYU main building, which is no longer there, the Wadsworth Athenaeum, the first museum in the United States, Virginia Military Institute. So he was it. He was the most important architect. And this house is considered his masterpiece. It's also important because it's the changeover in the United States from classical architecture, that architecture of the country after the Revolutionary War, and from its heritage in England, where we're really building classical sculpt- architecture in the way that the British would have been doing in the 18th and early 19th century. And it is the first romantic house in the United States. It's the first Victorian house that reflects the owner's personality. Jay Gould says, I've got these houses in New York City and up in Terrytown, and I need some work done on them. So what the Herder brothers do is they bring in particularly furniture that you see throughout the house. They change light fixtures. They change fireplace fixtures, make them a little more aesthetic. They bring in certain stained glass windows by, likely by John Lafarge, even though there are more windows that come in a little later by Louis Comfort Tiffany. So they they change the decoration in the house. They don't actually change the structure, but they change the feeling.
2: Now, I want to come back to Jay Gould specifically here. Can you talk a little bit about, Howard, what Jay Gould's life was like here at Lyndhurst? How did he use the house, and what did it mean to him?
3: Well, one of the things we always remind people who come to this house, and we are open as a museum, and it's a lovely place to visit, it wasn't a museum when it first started it was a country house where you could enjoy the surroundings in the heat of the early and late summer so what jay gould had was a place where he could bring his family and where they could have the leisure and the freedom of being right on the the hudson river during a time when it was getting warm and it was getting lush In particular, one of the things that attracted Jay to this property was its greenhouse. Jay loved orchids. He loved flowers. And Lindhurst had an immense greenhouse. It's it's considered to be the largest private greenhouse in, I think, uh, definitely in the country, and I believe in the world, when he buys the place. So that's one of the reasons that he's here. He actually likes nature. He likes flowers. He likes the ability to have a house but to be in the country when it's warm.
2: I think that's such an image of Jay Gould that we just don't have, is a man that loves flowers. And the the greenhouse is still here. It's extraordinary. I, we drove by it this morning, coming coming here. Can you talk a little bit about how did he educate himself in the world of horticulture? Because I also want to talk about his passion for art, since we're sitting in his picture gallery. But let's go back to the horticulture. How did he... Train? How did he learn? How did he understand that world?
3: Well, one of the things to remember about Jay Gould is that he grows up in the upper Catskills in Roxbury, New York, which is in the Catskill, in the northern Catskill Mountains. Even at that point, it was relatively isolated. So he was a country boy. He grows up with a gentleman named John Burroughs, who is really the first naturalist in the United States. He's, he writes about nature primarily and is wildly popular at the end of the 19th century. And they were schoolmates up in the Catskills. So I think what we oftentimes forget today is in a day before you had television, radio, much less the internet, the computer, the smartphone you really had to entertain yourself by looking at what was around you. And growing up in the Catskills, you would have known all the New York fauna. You would have known the flora. You would have known the birds. You would have known the wild foods that could be foraged. That was just a standard thing because essentially that's what you were surrounded by and that's what you knew. So I think this is something that starts with him very early on in his life. Later, as he becomes far more affluent, he's able to affect it to a much higher standard. So, for example, the um, orchids at Lindhurst, which I believe were primarily pathopediliums, in the 1930s, the New York Botanical Garden orchid house burns down. And in the 1940s, Anna Gould sells the contents of the Lindhurst greenhouses for Red Cross war relief, particularly at a time when you didn't have the coal to heat a greenhouse. And the New York Botanical Garden buys Jay Gould's orchid collection. That's how important it becomes. Jay Gould also buys a suite of orchid pins that are developed by Tiffany and Company that are famous today. They're really, they're one of the priceless works of Tiffany and Company. So he really was an aficionado. And I think the wealth allowed him to engage in the higher pursuits of horticulture than he would have been able to as a child.
2: Now, I really want to talk about his passion for art, because as I've said a couple of times, we are recording, we are sitting here in his picture gallery, which is a high vaulted Gothic room. The walls are covered with art that he purchased. Can you talk a little bit about how his passion for art began? And could you share a little bit about some of the paintings around us that he particularly loved?
3: Yes. Talking about Jay Golden art is a very interesting thing because Essentially, as one of the early masters of the universe on Wall Street, one of the things that people had to have were paintings. We oftentimes think of that as a contemporary thing, that if you're a big investment banker, you go out and buy a Warhol at auction and display it on your walls. But that's been going on for quite some time. And what we have at Lyndhurst is a room that started as the library originally, because in the early 19th century, when Lyndhurst was first built books were incredibly expensive because of the industrial revolution. They become less expensive and this ceases being a library. It becomes a paintings gallery because paintings become the display of wealth. One of the reasons we think Jay Gould bought many of the paintings that he did is because he wanted his children to have the same benefits that the Vanderbilts and the Astors had. And the Vanderbilts were very well known as major collectors of paintings. So Jay Gould buys largely French academic and continental academic paintings in the 1870s and the 1880s from galleries like Nodler, which were the major gallery that literally only went out of business uh, about a decade ago. And the records for his purchases are now, I think, in in the Getty Museum archives in Los Angeles. So it's very well documented what he bought and who he bought it from. This is also one of the last places in the United States where this early gilded age paintings taste can be displayed and seen. Uh, Most of the galleries like this have been dispersed. Paintings have either gone to private collectors or to museums. At Lyndhurst, it is largely here. We probably have three quarters of the paintings that hung in this room. And it is a very interesting example of how Americans collected at the time. The first thing to think about, even though these paintings look old and historic now, they were brand spanking new when they were purchased. So it really was the same thing as buying the most contemporary people you possibly could buy many of the paintings that were in here were things that people would have known the value of a little bit like wearing the price tag on the outside as it were so we have two paintings by the french artist Bouguereau, a very large early painting and a smaller late painting that's who you purchased if you were a major millionaire edith wharton talks about it you know you made your money you had to have a Bouguereau. so you have things like that throughout the picture gallery you have slightly unusual things, we have a very large, late Courbet landscape. Courbet was a political radical, and he wasn't really purchased by Americans. But Jay Gould buys one of these paintings that he does at the very end of his life that are purchased by a number of major industrialists. Cleveland Museum also has a major Courbet from the period. So he has things that are largely common for American industrialists to buy at the time, and a few things that are highly unusual. What I would say, though, is this is the last moment of this type of taste. Shortly after Jay Gould passes away, Mary Cassatt, the famous American painter living in France, gets a hold of the Havemeyers, the Sugar Barons living in New York. She introduces them to Impressionist painting and old master paintings, and that changes what people purchase and what they show in their homes. So this is, this is really significant because it is a moment that you really see nowhere else in the country.
2: And now Howard and I are going to take a bit of a break. But when we come back, Howard and I will be downstairs in the entrance hall to the mansion. And Howard will be giving us a truly unique tour of the mansion itself.
0: There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers.
4: Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill?
2: And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and Howard Czar and I are ready to begin our tour. So Howard, you have just led us into the entrance hall here at Lindhurst. We have a beautiful marble floor. We have the the Gothic vaults. We have the faux marble painted walls. Can you talk about what would have happened when a guest would have come here? At the invitation of the ghouls,
3: this would have been the first space they saw, right? Yes, this is where guests really would have arrived. And for those people who are watching HBO's Gilded Age series, if they go back to the first season, when Ward McAllister, the social arbiter of Newport, comes to visit Bertha Russell, it's in this space that they have the lunch. And you will notice that he is coming through... This space, you'll notice there are very important sculptures of George Washington and the Marquis de Lafayette by Horatio Greenau, the early 19th century American sculpture that have been here since the first owners. They walk past these on their way to the dining room. This is where you would have come in. Now remember, this space would have only been for family guests who were here to be involved with other family members if you were a business person you could have been jp morgan didn't matter how high or low you were but you didn't come through this front door you came through a second door to the side that was reserved for people who were doing business because that was considered you know filthy lucre it was a little it wasn't something your family would have been involved in so this only for family.
2: And I'm fascinated with 19th century entrance halls, because I think they they tell us a lot. Unlike today, not everybody gets into every space of one's house or one's apartment, right? So an entrance hall was meant to give you a little taste of what the style of the house was, some of the elegance of the house. Is that correct?
3: Yes, you're 100% correct that really not, you didn't have, I don't want to use quite the word stranger, but you didn't really have close personal friends in many parts of your house. So what you see when you first come into Lyndhurst, it's a suite of three rooms enfilade. So you have a glassed vestibule, which is added in the 1864-1868 redo, which is where you can take your shoes off or clean your shoes, change from boots to shoes, take your coats off, give them to servants you come into the entry hall, which is quite grand and has great faux painting and great artworks around it. And immediately in front of you is the reception room. And the reception room is where most people who were coming to call would have actually come and they wouldn't have gone any further than this. This is it. So you have a, a suite of three rooms. Other doors would be closed. This is what most people would have known of the house if they weren't invited for some other special dinner or function.
2: And this is a very elegant room. This It's a rather small room. It has three beautiful windows overlooking the, the porches and then the grounds leading down to the river. There's some beautiful stained glass. What's extraordinary is actually the ceiling painting here, which looks reminiscent of Italian fresco work. Can you talk a little bit about what the painting on the ceiling is and what message that would have carried to guests coming in here?
3: Yes. Interestingly, this reception room, which in its day would have been considered one of the grandest rooms today, is probably considered in some ways the least important of the furnishings in the house. This was something that was decorated by the second owners who were able to go to Europe at the 1850s and 1860s at a time when most Americans weren't doing that. That tends to come a little later and more into the Gilded Age that all the 400 are getting on their yachts going over to Paris to buy their Worth gowns. That's a little more 1880s. This is the 1860s. What you have here is furniture that our owners, the second owners, would have purchased in Europe that are grand tour reproductions of Renaissance furniture. They weren't actually buying the original thing, they were buying Later things, which today have relatively limited value, in that day, this would have been the stunner. This would have been the thing that said, boy, these people, they went to Europe. They have European works of art.
2: And I think that's interesting because with our modern eyes, we don't think about things like this. But with our 19th century eyes, everything would have carried a message. In other words, the European feel of this room would have sent the message to guests and visitors. Wow, they have been to Europe. They have seen these great treasures, correct?
3: Yes, that's very true. And again, one of the things that people have to think about is a lot of this stuff was done in particular if you had daughters who were coming into being marriageable which is literally one of the main reasons Newport existed. So if you came into a room like this, the message was, marry my daughters. They're well-funded. You'll be well taken care of. Please make sure that you keep us in your social plans. And that was a lot of why people were doing these things.
2: Now, there is a beautiful grand piano in this reception room. And that was Jay Gould's piano, correct?
3: Yes, this was Jay Gould Steinway. So one of the things you will also notice is there's is a photograph from 1868 when the second owners, the Merritts, move into the house. And what you can see largely is that what you're looking at in the room is what was here. There are two significant changes that date to Jay Gould. First, you see a Steinway that was Jay Gould Steinway, It was a piano that I believe was in his New York City residence. It came on the market, I think, in the 90s, and we purchased uh, and have now. It's not the huge Steinway that you would expect. It's a smaller version, but it was his. The second thing that you see in this room are windows that have been replaced. During Jay Gould's tenure, and these we believe are early windows by Louis Comfort Tiffany, Tiffany's family uh, lived in Irvington. Again, Lyndhurst was originally in Irvington, which in those days was Millionaire's Row. It was essentially the Greenwich, Connecticut of, of the 19th century. Uh, the border changes for some reason at the beginning of the 20th century, and we end up in Terrytown. But the Goulds and the Tiffany's went to the same Presbyterian church. So Louis, Comfort Tiffany's father, Charles, starts Tiffany and Company. Louis grows up wealthy. He starts his own business as a decorator in the early 1880s. This is likely one of the early commissions. And Jay Gould's daughter, Helen, uses him over and over again in many of the buildings that she pays for.
2: Now we're moving from the reception room. Let's just say the ghouls have agreed to see us as we come. And now we're coming into the library, which again has the gothic vaulting. We have some stained glass in the windows, but we have the enormous bookcases. Are these Herter brother pieces? No,
3: these are actually Alexander Jackson Davis for the second iteration uh, of Linthurst. Remember that when we talked about the Grand Picture Gallery upstairs, that was originally the library. With the second owners, this becomes the library. This was originally the dining room on the ground floor. The mansion ended where this archway is right here. So if we're in this room were likely very close friends or relatives of the Gould family. Maybe the Gould children are having some of their cousins, and we're in here choosing books from what is largely Jay Gould's library is what you're looking at on these shelves, basically. So this was a luxury It was no longer quite as high a luxury as paintings. But it was still having information having books was really something to this extent that only the wealthy like Jay Gould could afford.
2: So now we're coming out of the library. We're crossing the, the marble hall and we're coming into a room that I just find fascinating. This is a rather small room. Again, we have this stained glass. We have a beautiful fireplace. We have this extraordinary desk that you talked about. So this was what what happened here. Howard, what was this room?
3: Well, this is one of the rooms that is least documented. We don't really have photographs of what happened in the room. And the name on the room changes a little bit from the first Davis drawings to the second uh, remodel. It's described alternatively as an office or as the gent's room. And let me talk a little bit about what a gent's room is. So when you're entertaining... You would go from the Lyndhurst Parlor down this very long, dramatic hallway to a set of double doors that would open on the dining room. Very dramatic dining room, which we'll see in a moment. So after dinner, the ladies would remove to the parlor where they would have after dinner, tea, and discussion. The men would go to the gents' room where they would have hard liquor, cigars and discussion of nefarious types. I'll leave it to your imagination to think of what those might be. And so that's likely what this room would have been. Today, it's set up with many of the paraphernalia and accoutrement that belong to Jay Gould. So some of the things that you see in this room, for example, are the Wooten desk that we talked about. And this is, again, what I refer to as an iPad of the 19th century because this this closes up. Those side doors with all the cubby holes and the areas for books closes up, locks. It has wheels at the bottom. And servants would wheel it from a house to an office to a yacht to a railroad car to a hotel room. It really was the way that you could carry your office with you before there was universal portability of information. On top of the Wooten desk, you find a silver model of Jay Gould's train car, which has ended up in a small village in Texas um, and is still there today. It ended up, uh, his son owned it. It was redecorated for his son. They decided to bypass that village and build the rail line elsewhere, and the village still has the rail car today. A painting of the yacht. There's a model of that yacht down in the exhibition that's going on currently. So now we're going back
2: down the hall and as you indicated just a few minutes ago, really getting to one of the grandest rooms of, of the house, which is the dining room. Can you talk a little bit about what this approach would have been like? And I mean, this feels very ceremonial, very grand. Am I
3: right about that? Yes. The the One of the things about Alexander Jackson Davis, he's really quite a good architect. The house does, for its size, does not feel overwhelming. A lot of people who come here say, oh, I could really live here, because he divides up this large-sized house into smaller spaces. But one of the things he's also very cognizant of are these processional spaces. So when you look at the way the house is laid out when he expands it in 1864 to 1868, is the parlor is at one end of the house. The dining room is at the other. Because what would happen is before dinner, everybody would come into the parlor to assemble. And what's very interesting about the way those rooms were used is they were used very sparingly. A lot of people grew up with their parents saying, "Oh, don't go into the living room, you're going to mess it up. That's only for company. Well, that is not just a middle class thing. That is how these houses were oftentimes used by the extremely wealthy as well. Certain rooms were really only used on rare occasion because the materials that you got for them were not that easy to get. You couldn't just go to the mall and buy things. You had to order. You had to plan. It took a long time. So people would assemble who were coming to dinner in the parlor. They would chat in the parlor. And then when dinner was announced, you would walk down this long hallway. Likely the pocket doors at the end of the hall would be thrown open and then you would come into this very richly decorated room. The walls of the room look like they have red leather with flocking and gilding in the center of the flocking there's extensive marble columns everywhere there's extensive carved wood there are lighting fixtures there's stained glass windows in the four corners of the room there are classical sculptures and on the side of the room are two very elaborate sideboards with radiators at the bottom marble tops and wood above so it would have been like theater coming down In a procession to enter this dining room. But this dining room at its largest holds 14 people. By contrast, the Breakers holds 300. 1864, having 14 people is quite grand. 1894, 300, that's more what your mark is.
2: So in interpreting the dining room, would you say that for Jay Gould, this really was, even though we I'm sure he entertained, this was really more of a family space?
3: I think that's fair to say. Again, we don't officially know, but from the little we can see of his correspondence, he actually engaged with his family. He engaged with his relatives. He engaged with his children. And we think that largely that would have been used for those reasons. Now, these rooms are very multifunctional. The table can close up to just hold six. You can have smaller tables in the niches. So you don't have to use it constantly at at its full scale. You can use it in very different ways depending on what the meal is, how formal, how casual. But I think most people don't realize you would have never, like we do today, you wouldn't come wearing your gym clothes to a meal. You would always have had some level of appropriate clothing and would have had Assemblage of a family you wouldn't just eat you know on your own and run off in the way that we do today it was a much more formal affair but it could accommodate all those different things
2: well the gilded gentleman heartily approves of that 19th century mm-hmm. style well, um, and, and clothing yes. I'm glad they do <laughs> I
3: think one of the things you also see is a little bit of what we have set up currently is a little bit of what servants were like in these dining rooms there are two outfits at the end of the table The one to the right is livery that is owned by uh, Helen Gould. It's a dark blue wool coat from Brooks Brothers with gilt brass buttons. To the left is the livery that her sister Anna Gould would have had in Paris at her Palais Rose on the Champs-Élysées when she was the Countess de Castellan, her first marriage. And this tells you a great deal about the difference between the sisters. So... Anna Gould's livery is quite elaborate, red satin and silk, gilt brocades, large brass buttons, very, very elaborate, very aristocratic. Her sister Helen, a little more sober.
2: Howard, thank you so much for giving us this tour today, for literally opening the doors of Lyndhurst to us at the Gilded Gentleman and also to my listeners. I encourage all of my listeners to please come and pay a visit here to Lyndhurst, also to see the special exhibitions that you have available here. And I know you'll welcome them all, right,
3: Howard? We're happy to have everybody just like we had you. Most of what we saw today is open to the public, and there are many more buildings on the property, the bowling alley, swimming pool building, that are also visitable. So please come and join us. Absolutely.
2: Thank you so much, Howard. What a treat. And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Karen Gannon. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show at patreon.com slash gentleman. Your support helps me to manage the costs of researching, writing, creating, and producing the show. I couldn't do it without you. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Hello, this is Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Did you ever wish you could get a glimpse of what Christmas was like in the Gilded Age? Well, now you can. Join me and Barry Boys Walks on December 9th for a special VIP one-day bus trip from Manhattan to Lyndhurst Mansion in Terrytown, New York, Gilded Age financier Jay Gould's country home, and the subject of my new episode today. For more information and tickets, please visit BoweryBoysWalks.com. I hope to see you on December 9th.
4: Addie. Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill?